Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 342, King Canute of Denmark and England. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Donna, Megan, and Felix for signing up already. If you've already heard about King Canute, then probably what you have heard was the story about King Canute and the tides. The most common version of it goes like this. Quote, Canute, the greatest and most powerful monarch of his time, sovereign of Denmark and Norway as well as England, could not fail of meeting with adulation from his courtiers, a tribute which is literally paid to even the meanest and weakest of princes. Some of his flatterers breaking out one day in admiration of his grandeur exclaimed that everything was possible for him, upon which the monarch, it is said, ordered his chair to be set on the seashore while the tide was rising, and as the waters approached, he commanded them to retire and to obey the voice who was lord of the ocean. He feigned to sit some time in expectation of their submission, but when the sea still advanced towards him, and began to wash him with its billows, he turned to his courtiers and remarked to them that every creature in the universe was feeble and impotent, and that power resided with one being alone, in whose hands were all the elements of nature. Who could say to the ocean, Thus far shalt thou go, and no farther? And who could level with his nod the most towering piles of human pride and ambition? End quote. Now, that was the account handed down to us by David Hume. But David Hume was writing in the 18th century, meaning that Canute had been dead for about 700 years before Hume put pen to paper. And perhaps more importantly, Hume was writing long before the development of the modern study of history. In fact, he was writing decades before the Victorian era even began. So the rigorous analysis and interrogation of sources that we've come to expect from reputable scholars wasn't a practice that existed when Hume told us this story of Canute. Now, don't get me wrong. Hume did a lot of stuff that was good, but he was also a product of his era. And by modern standards, he played it pretty fast and loose. But the question that should follow this account is that given the length of time that had passed and the era in which Hume was writing, well, given that... Where did Hume's story about Canute giving an oceanic-based Bible study class come from? Well, he doesn't directly say it, but it appears that he was drawing from Henry of Huntington. Here's Henry's account. When Canute was, quote, at the height of his ascendancy, he ordered his chair to be placed upon the seashore as the tide was coming in. Then he said to the rising tide, You are subject to me, as the land on which I am sitting is mine, and no one has resisted my overlordship with impunity. I command you, therefore, not to rise on my land, nor to presume to wet the clothing or limbs of your master. But the sea came up as usual, and disrespectfully drenched the king's feet and shins. So jumping back, the king cried, Let all the world know that the power of kings is empty and worthless, and there is no king worthy of the name save him by whose will heaven, earth, and sea obey eternal laws. Thereafter, King Canute never wore the golden crown on his neck, but placed it on the image of the crucified Lord in eternal praise of God the great king 
by whose mercy may the soul of King Canute enjoy rest. End quote. Now you'll note that Henry is a little lighter on the details than Hume. For example, while Hume gives a general sense of timing for this story, Henry doesn't do anything of the sort. There's all kinds of details that Henry doesn't include, but we do see them in Hume's account, which makes you wonder where Hume got those details. And that is a good question. But you might also notice that the story is different in more important ways. In Hume's account, Canute seemed to be acting out a parable with a moral point. But in Henry of Huntington's story, Canute seems to have done something dumb and then got caught and said, actually, I meant to do that because I wanted to show you all why we don't do that, which is very much a different theme for the story. But here's the thing about Henry of Huntington. He was writing about a century after Canute had died. So where did he get his information from? Well, if you look back at the Chronicle and the contemporary records from the period, you find nothing. You don't find this story prior to Henry of Huntington's account, and there is no document that corroborates any aspect of it. So we don't have any person who was alive at the time of Canute saying, hey, remember that time when Canute thought he was Poseidon? And that might surprise you if you're one of the people who've read a popular history about this era or learned about it in school as a child. Because many times, this story is presented as a factual event, even though those pop histories are basing their accounts on Hume, who was basing his account on Henry, who was basing his account on God knows what. Frankly, it's a strange feeling to realize that many of the pre-Norman histories we were taught as children were little more than bedtime stories but it's a reality we have to confront if we're going to actually learn about the past. And the good news here is that the true story of Canute, just like the real story of Alfred, is far more interesting than the myths about cakes and tides. So let's get back to Canute, the real Canute. In 1018, barely a year after Canute had begun his reign as King of England, things in the area started to really look up. Eric Striano is dead, which must have been a relief. But beyond that, the Viking raids had come to an end, and the years of endless war were over. And right on cue, the land responded. It began to spring forth an enormous bounty. Fields became more fertile, and crops were once again plentiful. And thanks to the increased availability of food, livestock began to be healthier and began to make lots of little livestock. The age of Athelred, which had been marked by famine, war, and deprivation, suddenly gave way to the age of Canute, an age of plenty. And in a time when everything from crops to raiders to duck migrations were seen as signs from the Almighty, well, this was a clear indication that God was pretty damn pleased with what was going on in England. And then, as if reinforcing that same message, on that same year, Archbishop Liffing went on pilgrimage to Rome, and he returned with letters from the Pope, who instructed Canute to provide security and justice as king in England. So Canute now basically had the Pope's seal of approval. All the signs were indicating that England was now enjoying God's favor. But what the English at the time didn't realize, but we do, is that the state of England's farms and its fields and its livestock actually had nothing to do with the decisions of the Pope, Canute, Emma, the English nobility, or even Unferth. 
Instead, this was the result of a global event. England, and thus Canute, have become the beneficiary of climate change. Now, typically, when we talk about climate change these days, we're talking about human-caused climate change. You know, human activity resulted in a spike of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, and their presence in our atmosphere has led global temperatures to rise at a frankly terrifying rate, which, if left unaddressed, will leave us unable to survive on the very same planet that's birthed us. You know, climate change. But that isn't the only kind of climate change. There's also a much slower version that predates humanity. And actually, you might have heard about this kind, too. Fossil fuel executives and their allies often bring it up to distract from the current human-caused disaster. But the fact is, Earth does have its own ebbs and flows in its climate. And while those changes are much slower and far less dramatic, they too are a form of climate change albeit one that is far less catastrophic. But for a species such as ours, which relies upon the bounties of nature, even these smaller changes can have a substantial impact on our quality of life. And when Canute took the throne, this natural form of climate change had been flowing in the background. And the temperatures, precipitation patterns, and trade winds on the planet had shifted. And for England, these changes meant that the weather on a day-to-day -day basis was generally better for agriculture than it had been in previous years. And that's why, rather than struggling through famine, instead, almost as soon as Canute took the throne, crop yields increased. And for a food-based economy, that meant that everyone's lives suddenly improved. And for the medieval mind, this shift, along with the sudden halting of their Scandinavian woes, meant that Canute's rise to the throne may have been a supernatural event. But the truth is, he was just lucky. And speaking of luck, likely looking to capitalize on his good fortunes, Canute had begun to look towards Denmark, whose throne had recently become available following the death of his brother, King Harold II. And you might be wondering why Canute would even want Denmark, considering how unstable it was. Well, Denmark was actually quite the boon for anyone who could hold it and wield it. First of all, it was one of the more fertile portions of Scandinavia, which, given the economy of this era, was a bit like printing money. And then you have its geographical advantages. Denmark sits as a choke point between the Baltic Sea and the West. Anyone who wanted to go in or out of the Baltic had to go past Denmark, which meant that an ambitious king of Denmark could turn his kingdom into the gateway of the Baltic. And by controlling all the traffic in and out of the region, he could then profit from the trade that was taking place throughout those waters. Furthermore, there are over 400 Danish islands in that region, and some of them were operating as pirate bases, including the Isle of Zealand. And what this meant was that there are regional islands housing Vikings in huge numbers. And those Vikings paid tribute to the king of Denmark in exchange for the right to operate. Denmark also had intermittent control over the southern Norse and Swedish lands. And those lands could be exploited for their natural resources, including iron, which was in short supply in Denmark. They also controlled the fertile territory of Skawana, which meant they had access to taxes from their well-populated and wealthy lands. Basically, Denmark was a medieval ATM, and provided that you had the right PIN number, you could cash in for a lot of money. 
and Canute was pretty sure he had that PIN number. The trouble, though, was that he also had a limited window of opportunity. Denmark was the dominant power in Scandinavia, but Norway and Sweden weren't exactly wallflowers. King Olaf of Norway, this is the same King Olaf who refused Knut's order to kill Edmund Ironside's sons. Well, King Olaf was a powerful and influential figure in the region, and he was likely Knut's greatest rival in the north. Like Knut, Olaf had come from an influential family, but he had personally risen to power at the point of a sword, which meant that he had proved himself time and time again on the battlefield, and also in the spider's web of Norwegian politics. Olaf was an up-and-comer, and while Denmark was currently better positioned in the scrum of the north, given the right opportunity, King Olaf could easily seize control. Similarly, King Anand Jacob of Sweden had been working hard to centralize power in his kingdom and exert further influence in and around the Baltic. And then, just after King Harald's death, we see King Olaf of Norway marrying the sister of the King of Sweden. And in doing so, they laid the groundwork for an alliance between Denmark's two biggest rivals. And they just happened to do it while the Danes were dealing with an interregnum. Even from London, Knut would have been able to see the wolves circling. Danish dominance was under serious threat. And from the record, it seems that Knut moved quickly on this. But the first sign of his activity was a bit strange. Suddenly, on the same year as the death of King Harold II, a new Scandinavian noble appears in the English court and he was appointed as the Earl over part of Mercia. His name was Eglaf. And Eglaf was important because he came from an influential Danish dynasty and was the brother of the powerful Danish Jarl Ulf. Now, just on a bare reading of this, by appointing a member of a powerful Danish dynasty, we can see another example of Canute attempting to strengthen the bonds of rule between Denmark and England. And this particular handshake would have gone both ways. But there's actually another level to this, because Jarl Ulf wasn't just any random Scandinavian Jarl. A couple years earlier, shortly before Harald's downfall, Ulf had managed to broker a marriage between himself and a noblewoman named Estrid. And Estrid was the sister of King Harald and King Canute. So Jarl Ulf was already powerful enough to acquire a marital link to a royal dynasty that held two thrones. And considering the story that we are told in the Annals Reensis, it's not out of the question that Harold arranged that marriage with Ulf in an effort to secure his throne. But any way you slice it, Jarl Ulf was a big deal in Denmark. And then suddenly, on the same year as King Harold's downfall, we see Jarl Ulf's brother, Eglaf, ruling over part of Mercia. That's an interesting development. And one possibility for what happened here is that Eglaf was one of the people who brought news of King Harald's death, and perhaps even carried an invitation to Canute to take the throne. And then Canute, knowing that he needed allies, further ingratiated himself with this formidable dynasty by granting Eglaf some lands in England, thereby linking that dynasty's fortunes with his own. And the fact is, to hold Denmark, Canute would need powerful allies who wouldn't just proclaim him king, but who also would stand by him should any rivals come to seek the throne as well. 
And Jarl Ulf was exactly the sort of person you'd want doing that. So, at least to me, the sudden rise and station of Ulf's brother on the same year as this event strikes me as rather convenient timing. And then nearly a year passed, and I'm not sure why. The truth is, it could have been any number of things. For example, maybe Knut and his allies were working on securing further support for his succession. Or maybe the king wasn't quite ready to leave England. After all, he'd only recently conquered it, and there were still claimants out there who could return to retake the kingdom. Not to mention any number of disloyal nobles who might conspire against him while he was gone. I mean, it isn't like England had a reputation for fealty and loyalty during this period. But for an unknown but likely completely sensible reason, Canute waited. And then, sometime in 1019, Canute and nine of his ships set sail for Denmark. And the fact that Canute only took nine ships with him suggests that he wasn't expecting a fight for the Danish throne. And historians generally agree that he was probably invited by the Danes and was sailing to receive their submission. And as Canute sailed north, behind him, in England, was Thorkell the Tall. And from the records, it appears that Thorkell would lead England in Canute's absence. And ahead of him was Denmark, a kingdom that had a history of overthrowing their kings, and, at least according to the Annals Rancis, had recently overthrown Canute's own brother. And here he was, coming to claim the throne. That had to have been at least a little nerve-wracking. I mean, Denmark was in England. It lacked the dense, largely static hierarchy and systemic power structures that stabilized English rule. And instead, Denmark was a Thunderdome. And the fact was that even England couldn't really deal with long absences from its ruler. So how on earth was he going to manage ruling both Denmark and England? It's doubtful he thought he could just leave Denmark to its own devices and rule from England, but at the same time, he couldn't leave England either. There were too many claimants to the throne, and he was a newcomer from a foreign culture. He needed to be there, keeping his hand on the tiller, but he also needed to be in Denmark, keeping his hand on that tiller. I assume that Knut had a plan here, after all, he was sailing to take the throne, but unfortunately, we have no idea what the plan was. I guess it is possible that he assumed he could travel between the two kingdoms and leave his second-in-command in charge while he was gone, as he had done with Thorkell in England. After all, according to Adam of Bremen, it was just a three-day voyage from England to Denmark, provided the winds were fair. So regular commuting was a possibility, and given the distances involved, it's even possible that Canute might have been able to maintain a rather hands-on approach in both territories by sending messengers back and forth to relay commands to whichever kingdom he wasn't in. But all of that would hinge on him finding someone he could trust in Denmark the way he trusted Thorkell. And a reasonable guess here is that Canute could appoint his brother-in-law, Jarl Ulf, but that really is just a guess. And the truth is, we'll probably never know exactly what he had in mind as he was sailing north. All we're told is that he sailed to Denmark in 1019, and once there, he accepted the crown. He would now be King Canute of Denmark and England. Unfortunately, our information about Canute's time in Denmark is incredibly limited, but we do have a letter that he sent back to England, and in it, we have a fascinating line. Quote, 
I was informed that greater danger was approaching us than we liked at all. And then I went myself with the men who accompanied me to Denmark, from where the greatest injury had come to you, and with God's help I have taken measures so that never henceforth shall hostility reach you from there as long as you support me rightly and my life lasts." End quote. So here we have Canute framing his acceptance of the throne of Denmark as actually being a benefit to the English. And in fact, they should work to ensure that he stays on both thrones for as long as possible, because so long as he's there, some greater danger wouldn't befall them. And the truth is, we have no idea whether this is a factual reporting of some sort of diplomatic protection that Canute provided the English against, you know, some sort of shadowy threat, or whether this was just a bit of clever propaganda and he was trying to make sure his new subjects didn't switch sides while he was out of town. Given the timing and the fact that he sent this letter while he was still in Denmark, and the fact that the letter sounds to me like a nervous parent reminding their teen to behave while they're out, well, it gives me the impression that the real threat that Canute was worried about wasn't some mysterious barbarian army from the north. It was the possibility that the English might put you know, an Englishman on the throne while he was away in Denmark. But speaking about trying to establish stability in his domain, at some point, possibly during this visit, Canute attended a council where Archbishop Unwan of Hamburg and Bremen negotiated with the Slavs. And that seems like a strange aside, but the Slavs could actually cause a lot of problems for Denmark if they wanted to. And given that Canute could only be in one place at a time, there's a good chance that he was trying to put out that particular fire before it started. And then, after wintering in Denmark, Canute determined that it was time to return to England. And so we're told that in the spring of 1020, he boarded his ships and sailed south. Unfortunately, we're given no details on who would rule Denmark in his absence. But it was probably a group of Danish advisors, likely including Canute's powerful brother-in-law, Jarl Ulf. But that's just an educated guess. But remember how I said that even a stable kingdom like England didn't do all that well without its king for very long? Well, shortly after Canute returned to England, he attended a council at Cirencester. It was Easter of 1020, and this council had some really serious business to deal with. Elderman Athelweird of the Western Shires was in trouble. Big trouble. Now, you remember Athelweird from the previous episodes. He was one of the pre-existing highborn eldermen that Canute couldn't get rid of. And so rather than removing him from office, Canute began to place his personal guard, his Husgarls, in positions of power in one of Athelweird's most influential cities, Dorset. So Canute wasn't going to remove the old order, but he wasn't going to let them wield the same degree of power as they had under Athelred either. And it's possible that Canute's efforts at clipping Athelweird's wings had enraged the Elderman to such an extent that he ended up doing something. We're actually not told what he did. We're given no details of his crime, but we are told it was bad. Really bad. And as a result, Canute outlawed and exiled the Elderman. And this move was dangerous for Canute, because based on Athelweird's position and his suspected lineage, the Elderman was likely an extended family member of the old royal dynasty, and as such, he almost certainly had powerful friends. And yet Canute still exiled him. 
And given that he took such a risky move, potentially angering an entire dynasty in doing so, not to mention all their allies, historians generally think that the crime that Athelweird was exiled for was probably sedition. He was probably trying to stir up a revolt while Canute was out of town. And given how war-weary England appears to have been at this point, not to mention how many enemies Athelred and Edric had managed to make for their dynasties, I imagine that Athelweird was ratted out in short order. Hence, exile rather than armed resistance. But the fact that Canute had to exile one of his own eldermen shortly after coming back from Denmark wasn't a good sign. But then, in the following month, fortune once again smiled on Canute. Archbishop Liffing of Canterbury died. Now, Liffing had been a nominal ally of Canute, but his support had been largely purchased. And now that Liffing was dead, that meant that Canute had a chance to select his successor and thus reshape the sea into something that was more in service to the new Scandinavian conqueror. But while Canterbury would be helpful, it wouldn't really solve all of Canute's problems with the English nobility. There clearly were some English who were still upset about the Scandinavian presence in court, and that needed to be handled. And this matter was made hard by the fact that the English actually had a legitimate grievance. Losing sucks. And if Canute didn't handle their hurt feelings well, then Athelweird probably wouldn't be the last noble he'd have to exile. So in the summer of 1020, Canute, accompanied by his second-in-command, Thorkel the Tall, as well as Archbishop Wolfstan of York, consecrated a stone church at Assenden to honor the dead who fell in King Edmund's valiant battle against Canute. And at about the same time, the king also visited the tomb of Edmund Ironside and offered prayers and gifts to him. He also donated a gold shrine to St. Edith, who was King Athelred's sister and King Edmund Ironside's aunt. And these actions appear to have been direct efforts towards establishing a form of symbolic diplomacy with not just the English nobility, but with the greater English population as well. PR and public demonstrations of sympathy are common political tools because they work. So it's generally thought that the timing of the homage paid to major figures from the old royal dynasty were deliberate efforts at diplomatically soothing any tensions with the local English. And then, in November of 1020, Canute appointed Athelnoth as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And some sources credit Athelnoth with being the person who formally anointed Canute when he was made King of England. And that might have been part of what brought him to Canute's attention, and gave him the impression that he would play ball. But more than that, Athelnoth also came from the right kind of family. He was the son of Elderman Athelmar the Stout of the Western Shires. And Athelmar the Stout was the predecessor of the recently exiled Elderman Athelweird. So considering what had just happened, appointing a member from that family was a smart political move. And then, likely to ensure that the archbishop stayed in his pocket, the king granted the new archbishop tremendous liberties. Now, Canute had taken it easy with Canterbury under Liffing. Things had been going pretty well for the sea, but that was nothing compared to now. Canterbury, under Athelnoth, basically had carte blanche. More than that, Canute granted the archbishop significant financial and judicial powers, including, it seems, the right to the third penny of the shire. 
something that's typically reserved for eldermen and earls. And to remind you, the third penny is how the law handled the matter of judicial fines. For example, if you commit a crime and you have to pay restitution or a wear guild, a third goes to the victim or his family, a third goes to the king, and then the final third, the third penny, goes to the earl or the elderman who governs the region. Except in this case, it went to Archbishop Athelnoth. So Canute was giving the archbishop a massive passive income, likely in exchange for his friendship. And it worked. The Archbishop of Canterbury, like the Archbishop of York, was now on board with Team Canute. And with that, the king's work was done. The English, including their influential religious figures, were sated. And any rebellions that might have been coming out of their ranks were now handled. Everyone was happy. Except for one guy. For nearly a year while Canute was in Denmark... Thorkell the Tall had been ruling England. And it turns out, he kind of liked it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can join any of our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>